I'm going to invite you to take a copy of God's Word and turn with me to Mark chapter 15 this morning. Mark 15 verses 1 through 15. For those of you that are visiting Dawson, new to Dawson, we are walking through, journeying through the Gospel of Mark. We find ourselves now in the 15th chapter of Mark's Gospel. Decades ago, there was a publisher from Ace Books who sent a rejection letter to an aspiring author, and it read this way, we are not interested in science fiction with, that deals with negative utopias. We're not interested in science fiction which deals with negative utopias. They do not sell. The recipient of that letter was an aspiring author by the name of Stephen King, and 350 million copies later, he has proven that publisher's sentiment to be wrong. Decades ago, there was a small-town Mississippi lawyer who was sending in a draft of his first book. 16 publishers received it, 16 Saw it not fit for publication. There was one publisher by the name of Winwood Press that took a flyer on uh, this unheard of, unpublished lawyer and published 5,000 copies of A Time to Kill. John Grisham, that author, after 300 million copies that he has sold, still has framed all 16 of those rejection letters as a reminder of where he has come from. Now listen, you don't have to be a published or a, a author of any t- stripes to experience some of the difficulty of rejection. Reje- rejection is a part of life, isn't it? It's not an enjoyable part of life. No, no one wants to put themselves out in a relationship and, and say in that moment, I love you, and to not have that love responded to. Rejection is painful in relationships. Rejection is painful, especially when you're sitting in that uh, job interview and you feel as if everything went perfectly. You answered the questions, you exactly want this job, all of your training has led to this moment, you leave and you say, this was great. Only to get the call back, or maybe never to receive the call back, and to realize that your apprehension of that moment was different than the perspective of the person was interviewing you. Rejection is difficult, but it is a, it is a part of your life, it's a part of my life. Rejections come in all different shapes and forms. Our Savior, Jesus, is a man that is acquainted with sorrows in life. Uh, have you ever experienced grief? Well, he has walked the path of grief. Have you ever experienced pain? Well, he has walked the path of pain. Have you ever experienced rejection, which we all have? Guess what? Our Savior is the rejected King. He knows what it is to walk in the path of rejection. Now, our rejections pale in comparison to the rejection that our Savior experienced in His earthly ministry that ultimately God the Father used to purchase your salvation and my salvation. Our salvation was born out of His rejection. Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15, is a portrait of the rejected king. Three episodes of his rejection that intersect your life and my life. And while we're reading a first century account, 
of the rejection of Jesus, it has 21st century implications for your life and my life. Read along with me in your copy of God's Word. I begin in verse 1 of Mark 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Fifteen verses. Three episodes of Jesus' rejection. Three temptations that you have and that I have to follow the path of the rejection of our Savior. These three episodes, they intersect your life. We begin with the first episode, the episode of the Sanhedrin, which show us a rejection that is born out of self-interest. Notice that the Sanhedrin gathers together the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, and the verdict is clear. Jesus is guilty as charged. And it's a kangaroo court. We read this in Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. This is not judicial inquiry searching for truth that we read of. No, they, they know what they want to do with Jesus. They want to silence Jesus. They want to end his life. And they're searching for any straw of evidence to be able to pile on to Jesus in that moment. They hang on in Mark chapter 14 to the idea when Jesus, in passing, referenced the destruction of the temple and the rebuilding of the temple. Now, they're not searching for the meaning of what Jesus was talking about. They're not searching that Jesus is foreshadowing his earthly resurrection. No, 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 no. They, they want to hang their hat on him being a person that is preaching the destruction of the temple. Now, they cannot sentence Jesus to his death. So what do they have to do? They've got to climb the ladder. Roman-controlled Jerusalem, they're going to climb the ladder to Pilate, bringing the charges before him. Now, why do they want Jesus dead? Yes, he is claiming to be the Son of God. Yes, he is forgiving sins. Yes, he is calling the religious leaders to task. If we boil this down, why do they want to see Jesus crucified? Because he's a threat. 
He, he is a threat to their political power. He is a threat to their religious power. There is no such thing in the first century world, a separation of church and state. The religious leaders of the day were the political leaders of the day in Jerusalem. The, the political leaders of the day were the religious leaders. It goes back and forth here. And so Jesus is a threat to their political leadership. He's a threat to their religious power. And when power, when you hold it, and you taste it, and when you feel as if someone is prying it away from you, you will descend to the basis of motivations to grip and hold on to power. Jesus threatens them, so they must silence him. Jesus threatens their religious power. He threatens their political power. So they go to Pilate with these charges kill him. Now notice, you're not going to be in a place where the Sanhedrin were. Jesus has been tried. He has been crucified. But understand that the holding on of power is still a tendency and a temptation that we're all prone to. All of us in the sanctuary, myself included, first and foremost, we have claims upon our life. We have our best laid plans for our finances, our, our future, our, our family. And at times, Jesus comes and he comes claiming to be the Lord and the master of our life. And at times, we're having to choose my will or his will. And there are times where we live out that 19th century poet, William Ernest Henley. You might not know Invictus by heart, but we know the sentiment by heart. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And here Jesus comes, calling us to deny self, to take up our cross, and to follow him. He is coming to say, I am your Lord. I am your master. I am your captain. And understand in that moment, you will be tempted. I will be tempted to say, no. You cannot take from me what I hold so dearly. When I was a kid, there's construction that would go around our houses, and at times there would be these huge mounds of dirt. A bunch of boys running around in the neighborhood at that time. We'd climb up to the top of the hill, and we would play what was called King of the Mountain. You ever played that? You get to the top of it, and there's one goal. Push the person at the top off the top. Pull the person at the top off the top. Can there be five kings of the mountain? Mm-mm. Can there be two? Can you share the role of king of the mountain? No, there can be only one king of the mountain. And Jesus comes, and there are many of us that say to Jesus, I want the future benefits of salvation while I retain the kingship of my mountain. I want you as my savior, but I'm going to reign over my mountain. And Jesus comes. He comes to dethrone the I that seeks to reign in all of our souls. I've been crucified with Christ. 
and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Notice here that the Sanhedrin calls us to think about a rejection that is born out of self-interest. But notice, as Jesus doesn't come to be a consultant that we call when we're between a rock and a hard place, but he comes as master. He doesn't come to be a cozy roommate for us, but he comes to as master and Lord over every aspect of our life. And we reject that. We push away from that. But it's not the only temptation that we read of in this passage. We see another one who rejected Jesus. Not a group, but an individual. His name is Pilate. And it's a rejection that is born out of expediency. Expediency. A rejection that's born out of expediency here. Pilate is a Roman governor. Over 26 to 37 AD, there's 14 Roman governors over Judea. Pilate has the longest tenure, 11 years. He was a cruel man, ruled with a heavy hand. He really despised all of the Jewish customs. He has this huge project that he did, this Roman aqueduct he did over years. You know how he paid for it? He raided the Jewish temple. He raided the temple in Jerusalem to pay for this. Well, there's this huge protest. There's this huge outcry to pay for his pet projects out of what was so holy to the Jewish people. You know how he silenced that? He stomped the protesters down. He beat them into submission. He had one person in mind, and that person was Pilate. He had one goal in his political reign, and that was his ascendancy, his, his, his ambition, and he fed it, and he fed it, and he fed it. And here comes a person who the Sanhedrin says is calling himself the king of the Jews. Notice the interaction between Pilate and Jesus. He asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Notice how Jesus responds. You have said so. Now, it's interesting in this moment. He's affirmative in his response, but he pushes it back to Pilate, there must be something in the tone of voice. It must be something in the eyes of Jesus to this ruler, Pilate. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, yes, I am, but not in the way that you think, nor in the way that they think. The chief priests, they chime in. We miss it in Mark's gospel. Mark's just a brass tacks kind of guy. He gets to the heart of things. But when you flesh out Mark's account with Luke chapter 23, you notice that the chief priests begin to see, they begin to see Pilate wavering and so they say hey hold on Pilate there's three things that you need to know that this man has done right here the first thing is is he is is opposing the payment of taxes to Caesar hey you got a problem with that Pilate right the second thing that he is doing that you need to know about Pilate is that he claims to be Christ the third thing is he stirs up the people notice that Pilate again in verse 4 of Mark 15, as Luke fleshes in the details here, he looks at Jesus and he says, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. And what does Jesus do? He offers no reply. Jesus is silent, stuns Pilate. Mark tells us that Pilate is amazed because Jesus' silence is his most eloquent answer in this moment here. Pilate's used to these loud protests. He's used to people screaming and shouting and protesting, and here's Jesus in the midst of what already Pilate sees are these trumped-up charges. He can see through it already, and Jesus responds only with silence. You remember that old African-American spiritual? About this very episode in the Gospels, they crucified my Lord, and he never said a mumbling word, not a word, not a word, 
statement of words. They sung of this episode here, but they're also drawing upon the prophet Isaiah in the 53rd chapter when he prophesies of this very moment Jesus was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to his slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth, not a mumbling word, not a word, not a word. But see, to Pilate, Jesus' silence speaks volumes. Because Pilate can see that his silence is not a silence of defeat, not a silence of resignation, but a silence of confidence, a sign of surrender to the plan of God before him. Pilate is confused. He sees the charade of injustice all before him. He knows the chief priests are bringing these charges out of envy. He knows that Jesus is innocent and he's got a way out of it. And he ruled for 11 years. He's a cruel dictator that at times shows benevolence. And one way that he would do this is this annual tradition at Passover where he brings out criminals and allows the crowd in this sort of sadistic popularity contest say which one gets off scot-free and which one is going to be crucified so he can see through the charade of injustice that is being committed to this innocent one, Jesus, and he thinks, if I have Barabbas, who everyone knows is an anarchist, an insurrectionist, has tried to overrule Rome, surely they're going to choose the innocent one. But the chief priests, they stir up the crowd, and they say, no, 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 we want Barabbas. Let him go. Verse 12, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, underline it, be mastered by it, see it, wishing to satisfy the crowd, verse 15, release for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, Pilate's rejection of Jesus is, is out of him licking his finger and holding it up to see which way the wind is blowing. It is convenience and comfort for Pilate. He wants to satisfy the crowd. What that means is he wants the crowd to be off his back. He wants to move on with his day. So in this moment, seeing the one who is innocent, he chooses to go the way of the chief priest. He chooses to go the way of the crowd in this moment because this is what works for him in the moment. And his rejection of Jesus is a familiar path for all of us that are here in the sanctuary this morning. Pilate rejects Jesus out of convenience and comfort. He rejects Jesus based upon a popular opinion poll. And so will you be tempted. So will you, follower of Jesus, be tempted to reject the claims of Jesus upon your life when it comes into conflict with position and opportunities at times. At times, we're tempted like Pilate to choose the path of least resistance. Following Jesus rarely rarely takes us down the path of least resistance. 
Following Jesus means often crucifying our comfort, crucifying our convenience. And if you're like me, one thing that I hold dear is my comfort. Take this, take that, but I don't want to be inconvenienced. And the cross of Christ Jesus is always squarely set upon a life that worships convenience, a life that worships comfort, a life that worships which way, which way is the wind blowing? To be a follower of Jesus means that we must at times crucify convenience. We must at times walk headstrong into a wind that is blowing against us. It is never convenient, follower of Jesus. It is never convenient to be in a moment where the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin. And you realize that you, you've got to go to a friend, you've got to go to a family member, and you've got to look them in the eyes and say, you know something, I just blew it there. I blew it with what I said. I sinned against you. I am sorry. Will you forgive me? Is there anything about that that's comfortable? Is there, is there anything about that that's convenient? Some of us in this room are saying, you know, I'm going to share my faith when it's comfortable to and convenient to, and I'm here to tell you, if we're looking for the time to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, and it's based upon our convenience and our comfort, let me predict something for you. You'll never do it. You just won't do it. To be an ambassador for the Most High God, for what He has done in your life, it means ratcheting up the conversation at times where you go to that place where the conversation would not naturally go going against the wind. Taking a stand for truth in a world that so often celebrates what God says is wrong, I assure you, will not be comfortable. And I assure you, will be less convenient with every passing year. Do not be misled. The path of discipleship is not a path paved with your convenience and your comfort. It's just not. C.S. Lewis said it well years ago when he said, I don't go to religion to make me happy. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Notice here that we have two portraits of rejection. The Sanhedrin, a portrait of self-interest. Pilate, a portrait born out of comfort and convenience. And finally here, it's an interesting, and I think an informative third rejection that could go easily missed when we're walking through this gospel account. And that is the rejection of the crowd. Because here we have the crowd that ultimately comes into this mob mentality and say, Barabbas, crucify him. Barabbas, crucify him. Now you need to know some things about Barabbas. Mark tells us, the other gospel accounts, they tell us he is a convicted murderer, he's a leading zealot, he's a political activist, he tries to overthrow Rome. He is a person that crucifixion was made for. 
in this Roman-occupied first-century world, the Barabbases, this is why there was a cross. And so in this moment, he should obviously be the person that is crucified as a public example for every, every citizen who thinks they can stand up against mighty Rome. But notice in verse 11, the crowd, they are stirred up by the chief priests. Mark says it exactly this way, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Do, do you see that the chief priests use the crowd as pawns? We can imagine sort of the mob mentality that occurs. We can imagine people showing up on the scene that don't even exactly know the full extent of what they're getting into. But in this moment, they're swept up. And there's an agenda behind what is being said, and they don't know the cosmic scope of what this is. They're duped in the moment by the chief priests. There's a lesson to be learned here. The lesson to learn from my life is the lesson for us to learn. We need to be careful who we listen to because who informs us ultimately forms us. Who informs us ultimately forms us, shapes us, molds us. We have never lived in an age where there is more words before us. I think of Dr. Seuss, noise, 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 noise. All around us. Never an age where we have more access to information, opinions, perspectives. But my friends, quantity does not equal quality. And there are more words floating around than any time in human history, but we live in a land that is starved for wisdom and insight. The information that this crowd receives, it ultimately forms them. Now, I'm not saying get off social media. I'm not saying uh, build a cabin in the woods and, and just put your head under the sand. And That's not what I'm saying right here. But I am reminding you that this crowd was stirred up and they were deceived. And we, too, can be a part of the crowd that is stirred up and ultimately swept up. All of this said, God uses these three rejections, the crowd, the rejection of Pilate, and the rejection of the Sanhedrin to take Jesus one step closer to the cross. And before we're tempted to just shut our Bibles, there's something about Mark chapter 15 that sounds oddly familiar. The more we dust around in Mark chapter 15, the more our eyes cannot move away from this murdering insurrectionist by the name of Barabbas. Here we have Barabbas who is guilty, who goes scot-free because the innocent one, Jesus, dies in his place. Does that sound familiar? You say, well, I'm not a murderer. I'm preaching to all these great people here at Dawson. But you're guilty as charged. I'm guilty as charged. 
might not be murder. Anger, I know. Anger, you know. Might not be murder. But you know what it is to gossip. You know what it is to slander. There's, there's no one here who is righteous. No, not even one. Our lips spew venom. Paul's words are true words for all of us that are here. And our only hope as sinners who fall short of the glory of God is the good gospel news that we, the guilty, have had someone who is innocent die in our place. All of us have rejected Jesus. But even in those original rejections, it paved the way to our salvation. All of us are sinners who need the perfect innocent one to die in our place. Let us pray. So it is, God, that we come to you this morning realizing that we're prone to the same temptations of rejection. We know what it is to be pulled by convenience. We know what it is to be pulled when we feel as if we're losing power and control. We know how hard it is in the day-to-day life of being a follower of you to submit, to deny self, to be reminded that your lordship is, is a gloriously good lordship and that what you call us to is far surpassing than any of our whims and wishes. Our best laid plans that we pave the road of our lives with, they, they pale in comparison to what you desire to do in all of our lives. And so we confess that we resist often your leadership and lordship. There's not a single one of us who are not prone to that type of rejection of you, the master of our life. We thank you that even in the midst of our rejection, even in the midst of our sin, that there is the hope of Christ's salvation, his death, the innocent one, who paid the full penalty of our sins. So we look to Jesus today. We don't wallow in our sin. We don't wallow in introspection. We know that you have paid it all, and it gives us a glorious hope as we take those steps forward as followers of you this very week. Lead us, guide us. We want your desire for our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.